The last third is just straight up make-believe Hollywood. Uh, Javier and I weren't running across those rooftops and running gun battles with without the Columbia National Police. We always had the police right. with. My cat was not sacrificed on my door. <laughs> I've never been right, kidding. Uh, it's it's just there's I love the writers. Some of those guys we stayed in touch with, but there's some sick puppies out in Hollywood. Right. I of the Board with Nelly podcast. Today, I'm joined by Steve Murphy, who is a retired DEA agent um, who was a lead investigator or one of the lead investigators in the manhunt for Colombian drug lord and leader of the Medellin cartel, Pablo Escobar. He is also the author, co-author of the book Manhunters, which I have here, which thank you so much for sending that to me. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. Um, how, we, how we took down Pablo Escobar, which can be purchased on DEANarcos.com. Steve and his partner, Javier Pena, also have been doing worldwide keynote speaking tours for the seventh straight year. Maybe that's been interrupted by COVID a little bit. It was, but yeah. we're getting back on track now. They used to do 75 appearances a year at one point. He also has a true crime podcast called Game of Crimes, uh, where each episode a good guy guest is featured who tells their side of the story. All the links down below, regardless of where you're listening. Steve, did I miss anything? <laughs> Nelly, I, the, I don't think so. <laughs> Thank you for all that information. Uh, I guess we'll talk to you later, pal. <laughs> yeah, you're a renaissance man within your own field, I guess. You're doing everything you can around your life, which has been a crazy one. So I guess let's talk about that. How did you get into law enforcement to begin with? Well, first of all, Nelly, thank you so much for having us on the show. Um, and I'll have to say, all the things you just mentioned there, we're doing things in retirement that we never dreamt we'd be doing. And, and when I say we, I'm usually talking about Javier Pena, who was right. my partner down in Columbia um, and is still my business partner now. But to answer your question, you know, since I was a little kid, I just wanted to be a cop. Um, I can remember I had my first run in with the police when I was about 10 or 11 years old. I was living in Tennessee and and we were camping out, some buddies and I, and we decided we'd ride our bikes up to the, the all night laundromat to get some, you know, a soda and some peanut butter and crackers out of the machines there. And, and of course, nobody had any money because we were so young. Right. And uh, so, well, the guy said, well, come on, I got money in my house. And so we went and tried to break in his house because we knew <laughs> if, if he woke his parents up, you know, he was going to spend the night in the house. He wouldn't be allowed to come out. Well, uh, we were such good criminals that I guess a, a neighbor saw us or heard us and called the police. When the police showed up, we were so scared. We just froze. We, we weren't even <laughs> smart enough to run. <laughs> you know, in the, the headlights. Oh, absolutely. You know, the two police officers came up and, they, and after they talked to us for a few minutes, they said, well, boys, you got a decision to make. We can take you to jail for the rest of your lives or we can take you home to your mom and dad. We looked at each other. We said, take us to jail. <laughs> really? Oh, we knew what was going to happen when we got home and it did. Believe me, it did. <laughs> you talk so, about having a very different childhood than most people. Your your father was a preacher? Yeah. Or a, a priest? I'm sorry. Maybe I uh, he, was, he was a pastor. He, a pastor, you know, my mistake. We, uh, you know, there's an old saying, you know, preacher's kids are the worst. Well, I might've been one of those guys, you know, I, I, really? that was only running went for the law, but, uh, I was, I'm sure I was a real challenge for my mom and dad, but you know, I mean, just, I just, just love being a, you know, what I saw with the police back then and not realizing at that young age, but as you get older, you realize, you know, these guys, they use a lot of common sense in what they do. And 
they had back then you had discretion in your job and you know rather than taking us downtown they knew they knew the, the worst punishment we could get was going home for our parents do you think your parents or your father was surprised when you eventually became a police officer based on some of the troubles you had in your youth? Yeah, I'm sure he was. Cause when he, re when he retired from, from being a pastor, <coughs> excuse me, uh, he and my uncle, uh, they're originally from West Virginia. So we all moved back to West Virginia. I was just going into high school. Well, actually I was in junior high at the time. Uh, we moved to West Virginia. didn't have any friends, uh, and they opened up a, a carpeting store, you know, a flooring store. Now I'm the only son of both families, so it was always planned for me to, you know, to take over the family over, business. Right. Uh, you know, I started in that business when I was 14 years old, sweeping the floors and cleaning the bathrooms. You know, eventually moved up into other parts, but it sucked at 14. Today it still sucks. I mean, that's manual labor. Those people in that business, <laughs> that's sure. hard work. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I guess another question is like, would you, if your kids or your grandkids wanted to go into this field, is it a different world today than it, you know, what it was back in your day? So much more. It's, it's so different now. Um, you know, <clears throat> I started as a police officer in 1975. Back then there was still some respect for law enforcement uniform. Um, it, it just seems like that's not so much the case today. I mean, we see what's going on out there and, you know, the first thing that happens you know, I'll just say right up front here, Manelli, that that over 99% of the police officers that I know are in the job for the right reason. They right. Uh, they don't make the stupid decisions. They're not out to glorify themselves. Nobody's looking to kill anybody out there. You know, occasionally, you know, you could get the, the wacko that comes in. And when that happens, you know, they typically end up in prison or dead. Right. Um, but there's, there's like 99.9% .9 of the cops out there are trying to do the right thing. You're just there to, to serve the public. You're a public servant. Right. Um, and, and that's what they want to do. But, you know, as soon as something bad happens, well, then the media steps in and these defense attorneys step in and they want to crucify the police officer before they even know the facts. You right. know, I mean, most of the time, I don't want to say most of the time, a lot of the incidents that go on here in the United States that result in, in a suspect or an individual being killed by the police, if they had just stopped... You know, when I get pulled over now, I put my hands on the steering wheel. I roll all my windows down. I turn the interior lights on in my car. I put my hands on the steering wheel with my fingers up. Right. So that, because that's what kills you. You're the hands of the, of the person that you're talking to. Right. And that way the, the officer can tell I'm not a threat to him. Uh, I don't do anything unless he tells me what to do. And, and if I need to do something, I'll ask, Hey, listen, my, you want my driver's license registration with my registration in the glove box? You know, I'm going to open right. the glove box. Okay. And, you know, as a police officer, I would notify them and say, listen, I'm, I'm a police officer. I have weapons in the car. And I would tell them where my weapons were. I don't want any surprises. Right, <laughs> and, right. And if, if people, you know, I don't know, I don't know. Every situation has different circumstances. I don't understand yeah. why. If a policeman pulls you over, why are you running to start with? If you didn't do anything wrong, why are you running? Right. It seems like now you're getting it from every side. It seems like now the people are against you with these radical thoughts of defunding the police. It seems like the, the crimes, you know, the violence, especially if you're, you know, a police officer in a rough area are intensified. The media is fueling all of it. It seems like you're now getting it from every single angle and you're creating this super hostile environment between the people that are you know, there to protect you and, you know, regular citizens, right? It seems really odd. I, th I think you hit the nail on the head there, man. That's, I think that's very insightful the way you described it. 
uh, there are factions out there that finance these people to create chaos in communities. You know, whatever situation is, they'll send their minions in there, and they're the ones, you know, breaking the car, breaking the windows out of businesses and robbing, right. and torching the cars and throwing stuff at the police officers. And I'll, I'll say this too, and, and I hope all your listeners understand this. There's nobody that hates a bad cop more than a good cop. And if you've taken the oath to carry the badge, right. serve the public, and you betray your oath in the public, in my opinion, and in the opinion of every good police officer out there, you need to serve the worst of the worst punishments because you took an oath. You, you accepted the public's responsibility to protect them. You know, that, you don't take that lightly. If you're doing that, you're in the wrong uh, kind of work. You need to find a different career. Steve, I feel the exact same way about bad YouTubers that make uh... – <laughs> click click fade thumbnails and yeah. family vlogs that are way too personal i feel the same way you're just making all of us look bad man take take that shit down i'm with you <laughs> so in the early days you know you start out uh, in your hometown right being a being a police officer and then you moved into what miami was that the first place or, or did you move around well, a little bit i started in, in 1975 as a uniformed police officer in a small town i went to high school in, in a little town in west virginia called princeton um, then I became a police officer in Bluefield, which was a sister town, maybe 10, 12 miles away. I did that for six years. Um, I tell you, <laughs> after six years, I, I was barely making enough money to get by. I was working every off duty job I wow. could work. I became an electrician's helper working for one of the local firemen building houses. That probably paid better actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it did come to think of it. Um, I even sold Amway for a while trying to, wow. you know, just trying to make ends meet. And you would have been, been rich right now if you were an electrician because they're a super in-demand jobs and they're paying really well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. And that, I think that's what my mom was hoping I would do once I, <laughs> she realized I wasn't going to go in the flooring business. Right. Um, but uh, anyway, and I'm going to college during this time. So I'm working nights and going to college in the daytime trying to get my four-year degree. And uh, uh, believe it or not, I became a railroad policeman. with a, Back then it was Norfolk and Western Railroad. And now it's Norfolk Southern Railroad. Um, and people say, what the heck was a railroad cop? Well, you just, you enforce laws, you know, you try to protect railroad property employees. So you enforce laws associated with the railroad. Right. Um, did that for almost six years. And, and honestly love those guys, but I, I hated the work. It just wasn't me. So I, was I it too boring. What, um, was it too boring? Well, why'd you hate it? Yeah, it was boring. Yeah. <laughs> All the railroad guys right now listening. Oh, I can't fucking believe uh, he said that about. Uh, that's what I say. I love him to death. You know, and I and I tell you what, I doubled my salary as soon as I went to the railroad. Wow. Um, which still wasn't a ton of money, but I that's mean, one you of know, those you cushy know. jobs, then, right? That's one of those like you kind of get in and you're set for for a good time jobs, right? Yeah, no, not really. No, uh, <laughs> it's it it's actually physical labor because you have to go out and check seals on these, you know, the trailers that are on the railroad cars. Oh God stop, you're climbing up and down and you know, it's, it's a little bit dangerous. And where I was, I started out in Norfolk, Virginia for two years and I came back to West Virginia. I was the only railroad cop on duty for like 26 counties, you know? So you always always had to depend on the local police when you needed assistance. But anyway, uh, a friend of mine is railroad cop, uh, Pete Ramey, just still dear friend. He's the guy that got me interested in DEA. He was a former Virginia state trooper had worked on the DEA task force out of Roanoke, Virginia, and, and told me stories about what he did. And I thought, man, I've always, always been interested in narcotics. So right. uh, applied to DEA in 1985, finally got hired in 1987. There was a long, long background process involved. Went to the academy for four months. Uh, my first post of assignment was Miami. So I got there in 1987. 
still the wild west days. I mean, cocaine right. was king in South Florida, you know, Escobar owned South Florida at that time. And, um, <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story also, Nelly. So my first, I'd, by the time I got to Miami, I'd been a cop for almost 12 years, right? The most powder cocaine I'd ever seen at one time in that 12 years was two ounces, a baggie about like this. Right. First case I got to work on undercover. And this is, I'm working for with a senior partner and he's been working this case for a couple of years and they just needed somebody to pose as a deckhand on an undercover fishing boat. It was okay. a, it was a 53 foot hatter sport fisherman, which I didn't even know what that was. It's one of those fancy fishing boats that has the fishing chair in the back. Okay, cool. So I did that with our two captains were undercover DE agents. We left Fort Lauderdale, took us five days to get to the Turks and Caicos islands, which I'd never even heard of back then. You know, we've well, been amazing a place. Beautiful. It's beautiful. You're right. We've been a prop when we came out of Fort Lauderdale, we limped into the Bahamas. We eventually got to Nassau. We had to replace the propeller. So anyway, five days later, we finally pull in. Well, any, any, almost any big dope deal never goes as planned. And we call it, right. you're humming along. It's a Hummer. And so we, sure enough, we get there and the plane that's supposed to bring, bring in the Coke into us uh, is delayed. <clears throat> so we, I fly back, the two boat captains stay with the boat in, in the Turks and Caicos. I fly back with some of our agents. Then when we finally got the deal set up again, come back for a second time. Now I'm there with the two boat captains and we've got an undercover Turks and Caicos cop with us. A twin engine plane flies in from Cuba, lands in Providencialis, comes to the end of the runway because they don't have taxiways. It's just one paved strip. Okay. He lands, comes to the end of the taxiway, does his turn. As he makes the turn, the back door comes up on the plane and they throw all these green duffel bags out. They take the plane, close the door, take the plane up, refill, take off again and go back to Cuba. And that's going to be significant here in just a minute. Mm -hmm. What was in those, those duffel bags was 400 kilograms of cocaine. Wow. So I went from two ounces to 880 pounds of Coke. And I'll tell the world, I was addicted to Coke at that time, but in a different <laughs> right. way. <laughs> right, right. And the significant get that high, right? You got that high. Holy shit. This is, I've been oh, actually doing something that matters now as opposed to like two ounces before or whatever it was. You're like, yeah, this is child's play. It was, I, it was just one of the most exciting things I'd ever done. And you, and you know, you kind of question yourself, are you going to be able to work in an undercover capacity? And I'm thinking, Holy cow. I mean, if this redneck hillbilly can work in undercover, you know, just about anybody could. Right. But the significance of that plane coming out of Cuba and going back to Cuba is there was a, there was a uh, U.S. military P3 up tracking and it proved that Cuba was being used as the transshipment point for Colombian cocaine coming into South Florida. Wow. That's huge. Now, right. My partner was, you know, when he went to court, he was going to indict, uh, believe it or not, Raul Castro for Dale's brother. Wow. How, how'd that go? <laughs> Well, um, he got to the, he got to the courthouse there in Miami and that's where you get to, this was my first, uh, inkling of, of politics and bureaucracy. Yes. DEA. You know, they got a phone call that said, uh, listen, you're not indicting this guy, stand down. And it came from the white house Jesus and Raul's never indicted, but it did go out public. It was, it was released in the press. And, uh, if and this, this is actually, this whole incident is documented in our book, Manhunters. Yes. The Castro brothers. Thank you for putting that up there. Castro <laughs> brothers. I'm a professional host. I just. <laughs> You're a good man. <laughs> the the uh, the Castro brothers identified. I think it was five Cuban military people. One being a general, and they executed them. Said they were the ones. Holy doing. shit! So it was yeah. It was the first bullshit that we right. were all you know. And I'd only been on the job just. I'd only been in Miami. I got there in November, and this was February of '88. I think is when this all went down. But man, you talk about an eye opener. 
but the, the other thing that was significant about that was we bent the prop on, on the, on the boat, you know, it was a twin engine, uh, uh, vessel and we were able to limp into Nassau and they had DEA made arrangements from the Navy. There was a U.S. Navy sub tender in port in Nassau. So the right. DEA air wing flew a new prop over from Miami to Nassau our, our office in Nassau, picked it up, brought it out to the boat. And then two divers from this, the Navy sub tender came over and put our new prop on for us. And I'm thinking, holy cow, we got this kind of pull, you know, right. in DEA. I, I was big leagues. Yeah. And so that's how it all started. I tell you what, after that, I never looked back. Let me ask you this. Is there any fear in the sense that, you know, you've just interpret, you know, you've just taken this a large amount of Coke, you've seized it. There's obviously going to be some people pissed and now you're going to be dealing in the big leagues where, you know, uh, Sicarios, you know, Hitmen, all this stuff. You're now playing with, you know, it's not some hippie who got busted with a couple ounces. Mm -hmm. You're now playing with the drug lords who in, you know, can probably murder you from any part of the world. You know, there is danger. There's always danger involved in the job. And I don't mean to downplay that. <clears throat> the excitement over <laughs> outweighed the danger, to be honest with you. Right. Um, and also, if you think about it, the drug traffickers, especially the big guys, they're in it for money. It's all about them. It's all about right. building their personal wealth and their power base. You know, I mean, seriously, it is all about their egos. If they kill a U.S. agent, it brings a lot of pressure on them, which is going to cut into their revenue stream, which means they make less money. Right. They saw what happened to Enrique Kiki Camarina, the DEA agent that was kidnapped, tortured, and murdered in Mexico. And they saw the U.S. response where the, we actually shut down the border between the U.S. and Mexico to get the Mexicans to come back to the table to cooperate. Uh, it's right. silly. I mean, there's, there's, the whole thing's documented. You can read about it. Uh, there's a good book out called Desperados that Elaine Shannon wrote on that. Uh, and so they just, they don't want to draw that attention to them because you're cutting into their, you know, their money is what it right. comes down to. So, I mean, you didn't take it lightly. I had uh, death. I had one death threat on me down there where we'd locked up, uh, we seized 500 kilos from a Haitian group. And when it finally got to the court phase, um, our base, our DEA base in Miami got a phone call, recorded phone call and somebody with a Caribbean accent, I guess is what you'd call it, uh, sure. left a message that I was being targeted and that they were going to try and hit me as I was going into the federal court building there in downtown Miami. Holy shit. So, but, and here's a good thing about that. So for my protection, the boss has said, okay, listen, start taking a different route home every day. Don't, don't set patterns. No, okay. yeah. And I'm thinking, am I going to get transferred? I'm like, hell no, you're not going to get transferred. <laughs> Just take a different route home. Keep your eyes open. Uh, they, they called the federal building and, and we got, they got me permission to park under the building, which is unheard of because that's, you know, that's where the judges and, you know, the yeah. prison go. So I got to park in the federal building during this one trial. And then it's like, get back to work, you know? <laughs> okay, changes. I'll see you Monday at eight. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Miami. But it was no complaints here. It was so exciting. Yeah. So after that little a rush, adrenaline rush, you know, you just what needed to keep upping the ante and then started looking for other, other opportunities abroad. Well, so my wife is a registered nurse, Connie. And, uh, I, you know, you want to meet a tough girl. This is her. And we've been married 38 years now. Um, I think it's going to last <laughs> seemed to be our marriage seemed to be stronger when I was gone speaking all the time because <laughs> I was with Javier a lot more than I was home. Wow. That's, uh, good. That's good. That's good news right there. <laughs> well, during COVID, you know, we, our business, oh, true. 80% yeah. hit, 
Um, yeah. So I was home for the last couple of years and, and it turns out we still like each other. So it's, it's working out real well. That COVID was a real test for a lot of people in their relationships. That's for sure. Oh yeah. Especially <laughs> working from home. <laughs> right. Anyway, um, uh, she came to me, we'd been in Miami for almost four years and in 1989, my partner, we were, we were doing a deal and it went bad and got into a shootout. My partner was hit twice. He survived, but our informant was shot in the throat. He didn't survive. Um, Sorry to interrupt so, you. That also happens in the show, right? That's, that's a scene in the show. Is that kind of accurate or no? Well, they show that Kevin was my partner. They show that he gets killed uh, okay. and, and he wasn't. You know, but that's sure good. That, thank God that's not the, that's what actually happened. Yeah. It, well, it made it a lot more exciting though, didn't it? But, and here's the funny thing about Kevin. Kevin is a former Marine. He was in tip top shape. Right. And Narcos, they make him look like the overweight dumpy guy. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he came back, like, yeah I bet he doesn't have any narco posters of himself in the show or something in his house. <laughs> well, he said, he said, man, I, I always kicked your ass in the PT test and here they make me out to be the fat dumpy guy, you know? Right. And you're the stud in the show, by the way. So you're, you're, uh, I don't yeah. know about that. it's a lot of Hollywood. Let's say that. Uh, but anyway, after several years in Miami, my wife came to me and she's like, you know, wow, we, this has been an exciting life here living in Fort Lauderdale and working in Miami. She worked in plantation general hospital and, you know, she was always into the, the blood and guts kind of stuff that I just think is gross as it can be. Our oldest son is a, is an orthopedic surgeon in Atlanta. And he used to send me videos. Uh, he does pediatric p- spinal surgery. He'd send me videos. He's cutting people open. I'm like, man, don't send me that. That is, uh, I think that's sick. Hey, at so, least he took you, you know, the mother's route instead of your route, I guess, right? That's probably positive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, stepmother, but that was good too. Fair enough, yeah. She said, you know, this has been a really exciting life. What's What's the next most exciting thing we could do after Miami? I said, well, you know, we could uh, transfer down to, to Columbia because I've been working a lot of cases with our offices in Bogota and Barranquilla. Right. She looked at me like I had three eyes. She's like, are you freaking crazy? And and my wife, you got to understand, just let her think about things. And, you know, I said, right. hey, so you just think about it and see what you think. A few weeks later, she came back. She said, were you serious about that? I said, absolutely. <laughs> she said, well, if we're going to do it, let's do it while we're young. So, you know, I applied and uh, I actually was selected to go to Barranquilla first. And uh, then that was, they they rescinded that transfer because they needed a native Spanish speaker right away down there. And I understand that. And I had to go to right. language school. So I reapplied and got selected for Bogota and then went to language school for six months. And I mean, you can hear my accent. Can you imagine this accent speaking Spanish? It's like, <laughs> it's like you come in the room and go, It's oh, like my. John Wayne in those Mon- in Mongolian movies where he plays Kangas Khan. It just, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. <laughs> I come in and say, hola, y'all, and everybody just laughs and, and we'll move on. But uh, that's how we ended up in Bogota. It was... Uh, Your you know inception what? worked, essentially, is what you're saying. You believe in inception. Luck. Well, you know, I don't believe in coincidence and I don't believe in luck. Right. You know, we always say, oh, you're such a lucky guy. There's no such thing as luck. I believe right. that everything happens for a reason. I think the good man upstairs has a plan and that's how it worked out and that's how I ended up in Bogota and that's how I ended up working Pablo Escobar because I didn't know I was going to work Pablo. Right. After that, you didn't want to push your luck. You know, you, you, you don't want to try, hey, can we bring in a third partner? Just, I mean, I'm just a thought. I don't know. You think about it. We'll give it two weeks. <laughs> no, it was good. It was good. <laughs> you know, luckily, I, I, that's when I first met pa, uh, Javier. Almost right. Um, and that was in 1991. And to this day, Javier and I are still partners. What were your first impressions when you met Javier? Well, he's, he's somewhat of a legend. He'll never tell you things like this. So I always have to brag on him a little bit. Sure. He was partnered up with another guy named Gary Sheridan, another agent. And Gary and I 
kind of hit it off to start with because we had some um, mutual friends in law enforcement back in the United States. And then Gary got promoted, but I started working with him and, and I got through the week that Pablo surrendered to his custom built prison. So that's when things really slowed down, you know, I mean, because then all of a sudden we know where he is and we can't get to him because of this plea bargain right, right. from government. Wait, but in the show, it's a little, this is why I, I mean, I watched a show a long time ago, a couple of years ago, and I read the book recently or I audio booked it, but I didn't want to watch too much of the show because then I get a really false sense of reality. So in the show, the, your character comes to Columbia much earlier than, than the actual uh, prison, right? Right. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> the timeline <laughs> is accurate except for that part. Okay, so that's, I guess, that brings, brings me up to my next. There was a lot of things that happened in that first episode that kind of built up the series, right? So I'm, I'm curious which part of this was true and which part of it wasn't because I'm sure you get asked this all the time. So let me let me see. I had some questions. So first, accuracy questions. His wife was actually, like, underage, Pablo Escobar's. Absolutely. She's got a book out. And she, she wrote, does. Yeah, it's, um, well, what's the name of it? <laughs> Doesn't matter. I'm sure it's uh, yeah. I read it. Uh, and she admits, I mean, she says this at the end of the book. And, and the book is, as in my opinion, the, her book is mostly about poor, pitiful me. I had this glamorous lifestyle. I didn't know Pablo's cocaine trafficker, you know, in law enforcement uh, yes. term for that. It's called bullshit. Right. Um, and now all of a sudden he's dead and I've got all these billions of dollars and I negotiated <laughs> an agreement with the Cali cartel and I lost oh, most God. of it. But you know what? They're not starving. They're still living in wonderful places. They moved to Argentina. You don't do that if you don't have money. Right. So anyway, at the end of the book, she admits that uh, when they got married, I think he was 25, 26, that she was 13. And she admits that she had an abortion at 13 because he got her pregnant when she was 12. Jesus so on top Christ. of being a mass murderer, you know, the world's first narco terrorist, the world's most wanted criminal, he's a pedophile. Right. Nothing glorious about, you know, I, we get, I get hate mail all the time on social media about, you know, pro Pablo, anti-police. And I'm thinking, that's a weird. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking most of you guys that are sending me that information, you probably weren't even alive when he right. when he was killed in December 1993. You don't know. Go talk to the families in Colombia sure. that had members that were just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time that were killed by indiscriminately by a car bomb or who were murdered because of whatever reason Pablo decided to kill him. Talk to those people because almost every place that Javier and I speak, there's a Colombian in the audience. I spoke at the, this, and I, I'm really honored that I got this opportunity. I got to speak at the Big Brothers, Big Sisters National Conference just a few weeks ago up in Indianapolis. Right. Told them, told them a little bit about the Escobar story. And then there was another lady there, uh, Julie Redkay, who just has a phenomenal story. Uh, I'm so proud of her. This is the first time she ever told her story. Maybe get her on the pod. Oh, she's <laughs> not, and I'll really, yeah. put you in contact if you want to talk to her. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, at, you know, and, and so at the end of this, you know, I always, Javier and I always make a point of saying Colombia is a beautiful country. We don't mean to portray it in a, in a horrible light. It's so much better than it was back then. And every, almost every audience, somebody will come up afterwards. And it even happened in Indianapolis. Somebody comes up to me and says, hey, I'm Colombian. I'm like, oh, great. Where are you from? You know, you talk a little bit. And they said, listen, I just want to say thank you for what you did for my country. Those are the people that know what the hell really happened down there. Not these people that send me the hate mail that want to cut right. my off and shit down my throat and things like that. <laughs> right. It's very odd, you know, because in, in one sense, I can see what the show 
kind of did it you know it made him a cool villain mm-hmm. and in order to do that you have to leave that kind of detail a little bit under the radar right is that the reason why they would do that well um what we like to say is hollywood will never let the truth get in the way of telling a good story right that's a great expression <laughs> and so back to your original question for the first two seasons which is about escobar and javier and i about a third of what you see is actually true. Those events right. happen, they're depicted correctly. The second third, well, those events happen, but they're not depicted correctly. They, they've been uh, dramatized. There's a lot of violence that's been added, you know, but it, I mean, it just makes for an exciting program, right? Sure. And then the last third is just straight up make-believe Hollywood. Uh, Javier and I weren't running across those rooftops and running gun battles with, without the Columbia National Police. We always had the police right. with my cat was not sacrificed on my door. <laughs> I've never been right, kidding. Uh, it's, it's just, there's, I love the writers. Some of those guys we've stayed in touch with, but there's some sick puppies out in Hollywood. Right. You? <laughs> how, you know, how do you feel in general about your life being this dramatized story? Did you have different feelings as, you know, you were starting to see the final product and maybe what you thought was going to be at the start. And then it finally, you know, it turned into this massive cult classic and, you know, you've got all this beautiful stuff that came with it, tours, a book. You know, well, actually, you wrote the book beforehand, right? No. The, the no, book. the book was after the show? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. So you got all these things that are kind of, you know, really cool that you get to get to tell your side of the story. But is there any, like, weird feeling there about how it, you know, the final product? Yeah. You know, initially, uh, a friend of mine in, in Washington, D.C. introduced me to two producers. I met them, and they wanted to take our story and and – create this political right-wing, left-wing thing. And that's, you know, Javier and I, we didn't think anybody wanted to hear our story anyway. Right. So we turned them both down and just said, you know, because you get your hopes up and you just say, screw this. I'm not going to, you know, we're not going to do this anymore. And then I get a call from a retired U.S. Marine that we'd worked with in Columbia. And I talked to this guy in over 20 years, uh, Gil Macklin. And uh, he said, yeah, after we caught up in our conversation, he said, listen, there's a producer in Hollywood who wants to talk to you. And I said, eh, Gil, you know, thanks, brother, but uh, we've been down this road before and it, doesn't, it never works out. So we're not interested. Right. And I, I don't know if you know any uh, U.S. Marines, but they can be a little bit colorful in their language. He's like, you MFR, I, I haven't talked to you in 20 freaking years. And, you know, and right. he just, and I'm like, okay, okay, I'll call. <laughs> and so I called this guy named Eric Newman. And Eric is the creator of the entire Narcos concept. He's the executive producer. He's the man. So I called him and, and he was very gracious on the phone and he kind of gave me a spiel and I said, uh, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. And I know he about fell out of his chair because people will sell their souls to be in Hollywood. I tell you. Right. Was there a massive lump sum of money that was being offered as well? Or, or was oh, that no. something that didn't bother to you? No. It, uh, well, I mean, you know, if I'm, I'm, Hunter and I both were coming up on our retirement ages. Right. We had promoted to the highest ranks within DE. It's called senior executive service. It has to be approved by the attorney general. Um, in in federal law enforcement in the U.S., you have to retire. Mandatory retirement is 57. We were both 56. Well, I had two daughters in college at the time, and our, our administrator had the authority to grant us three-year extensions, and she had already asked us both, offered, and we'd both accepted. So um, if – in federal service, you cannot make money on the side. You can't have a side job. Oh, interesting. So if we're going to do this, you know, that means we got to retire. Right. <clears throat> I mean, we were, you know, we had pretty decent salaries back then. And I got two daughters in college, so I needed the income. Right. So uh, Eric, uh, after I turned him down, he said, listen, I, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be in D.C. 
with a couple of writers on some other business. Would you mind having dinner with us? Let us give you our, our ideas. <clears throat> Excuse me. And if you say no, it's no, but at least give us an opportunity to give you, you know, to you. Right. Give us an opportunity. I said, sure. Cause, and this is the truth. I'm thinking that's going to be a free dinner, at a really good restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, Oh, that's great. So <clears throat> when I, and you can tell I'm a little bit silly, I like to have fun in life. And, and, uh, so when I came in the restaurant, I, you can, I guess through investigative skills, I don't know, 38 years as a cop, I can pick people out. Right. So the I, bullshitters. As, and I walked over to him and I said, I said, gentlemen, there's been a report that somebody at this table is holding some white powder believed to be cocaine in their pocket. Now I want all three of you to get up on the wall, spread them and don't cause a scene. And they're looking at me with these wide eyes and they start <laughs> smiling. They're like, Oh, you gotta be Murph. You know, and, and it was funny and it kind of broke the ice and, and we had a really good dinner. Um, yeah. and they gave me their spiel. And, and at the end of the night, he said, Eric, so what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to Javier. I mean, this sounds promising, but let me talk to Javier and, and we'll decide. And he, he, when we walked out through, he said, let me ask you one more question. Why are you guys so hesitant to tell your story? And I told him, I said, Eric, the last thing we want anybody to ever do is glorify this mass murderer. This, the world's first terrorist, Pablo Escobar. And he said at that night, he said, I promise you right now that will never happen in our series. In our opinion, he's lived up to his word. So that's yeah. how it all came about. Um, that was March of 2013. By May, we had signed contracts with, uh, it's, we say Netflix, but it really was Gamont International Television. Right. In June, at the end of June that year, I pulled the pin and retired from law enforcement. And in July, Hover and I were sitting in the writer's room in Hollywood starting to write the Narco series. Wow, that's incredible. Now you talk about the money. I'll just tell you from, we were paid consultants for two years for the money they paid us each year in conjunction with my DEA retirement, my government retirement. I made more as a working agent. <laughs> so oh, you know? Interesting. I did not expect that. I was a, that was a twist there at the end. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it's not what everybody thinks, but, but like you said, what it did for us is Narcos sure. came out such a hit that it really kicked off our speaking business. And, and so now here we are in our seventh year of, of traveling around the world. And more importantly, I would say probably it gave you another purpose, another thing that fulfills you in life, which is really invaluable. You're, you're doing these tours and it seems like you're having a lot of fun and, and podcasts and everything that you're doing, right? It's a blast. It's, it's an adventure. Um, you know, I, I think life is, should be an adventure. Uh, who wants to be bored all the time? And what am I, I'm going to retire and sit around in the house and do nothing. That's right. That's a pl that's a show. That's a plug for the show right there for the title. Um, there you go. Yeah. There you go. You don't want to get bored. You don't. Uh, this is why every guest is different unique, crazy stories yeah. to tell. Okay. So, so let me, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, and you know, I, I'm, I'm a Christian, so I pray to God that, you know, Hey, you show me what you want me to do. You open a door, I'll step through it. And let's see what happens. Right. And when it doesn't pan out, I just say, Hey, don't let me be, and I'm, I'm praying to God. I'm saying, don't let me be disappointed. Just show me the next door. Right. Man, we've been, we've done two or three UK tours. We've done two tours to Australia, New Zealand. We've been to Asia. We've, wow. we were supposed to go to India. We've been, well, we did go to India. We were supposed to go to Africa uh, the first year of COVID. And of course that got nixed. It's, it's amazing. Uh, the podcast is unbelievably successful more so than I ever thought it would be. Uh, we're just, That's you know, beautiful. you were still trying to grow it. We're just, we're just doing audio. We don't do video yet. We oh, do. come on. 2022 guys. Well, I am. Everyone wants to see your beautiful face. This old fart sitting here with the white hair. What little bit of hair I got? Nobody <laughs> wants to see that crap. <laughs> 
fair just, enough. I mean, I do, but hey, that's just me. You know, it is what it is. Um, just being gracious, and I appreciate that. So let me ask you a little bit more about, you know, once you finally landed in Colombia, I, I don't know if you've talked too many times about, like, what your day-to-day was in the early days and later on. Obviously, the show makes it seem like, you know, Hollywood shootouts every other episode. But what was your actual time there? What was your life like there? Well, that first year, you know, and, and in the show, it shows, I just want to clear this up right at the beginning. It shows that that Connie took the baby and went back to Miami, left me in Bogota. That's bullshit. That never happened. That's Hollywood. She ne- she stayed down there an entire three years I was there. Wow. And that's why you want to brave, meet a brave person. People think I'm brave. I'm not brave. I'm just kind of stupid, to be honest with you. I'll tell everybody. DEA well, didn't she, yeah, she has a story that she definitely would love to tell. No? Well, you know what? <laughs> not to plug our <laughs> Yes. We had her on as a guest in January. Oh, I, I looked that one up. And and she, I had to, I mean, I had to work on her for like six months to get her to, to do it. And when she got on there, she was only on for the first section for maybe an hour. And my partner, Morgan, is my, my podcast partner, Morgan Wright. And we he understood. And so we finished the first recording and about a day or two goes by. She says, you know, I've been thinking about this. i got a lot more to say about you. <laughs> so we recorded a second interview with her. <laughs> And I've got buddies that call me. They're like, man, I listened to your wife. She doesn't cut you any slack, does she? <laughs> she I just mean, had an hour and a half to vent or two hours to vent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what I like about her. She's, she stands up for what she believes in. She speaks her mind. You know, she'll tell you, you know, if you think, she'll like, I'll come home from a, you know, a tour and she'll like, hey, Mr. Hollywood, take the trash out there. Right. <laughs> the dishes need to be done. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, and I forgot where we were going. Well, with your- just about your life, life in Colombia when you got there. What was it like? What was your day to day? Well, that first year is when Pablo was in his custom built prison. So that gave me an opportunity to really bone up on the, on the Escobar investigation. I got to meet all the, the elite unit of, of Columbia National Police officers that Javier and Gary had been working with. I was able to earn their respect during that time. Um, right. And then when he escaped, I mean, you know, that was... Uh, See, I got there in June of 91. He escaped June 92. The cops called us the next day. Javier and I moved to Medellin. And for the next 18 months, we lived in Medellin, Colombia with the, with the uh, blockade de, Bus- de Buscada, the search right. of the 600-man force. And that was at the invitation of the government of Colombia. So it wasn't wow. like, you know, we're the ugly Americans going in and saying, hey, this, we're going to tell you how to do this case. That wasn't the case at all. So as we're living in Medellin, the ambassador, I mean, the the Americans at the embassy had told us, you Americans are not allowed to leave the base for your own safety, right. you know, and, and for the right reasons. You well, got I'm the not, biggest bounty on you, so it makes sense. Well, yeah, he put, there was a $300,000 bounty on any DEA agent, including Javier wow. and I. But Javier and I, we decided at the beginning, look, you know, we can't do this. We can't stay in the base. We had, you know, we had the U.S. Army's Delta Force was there. U.S. Navy SEAL Team 6 was there. We had CIA there, um, a couple other U.S. Intel agencies were in there and so we just decided we're going to continue doing business the way we do business and that's going out i mean think about it if i called you nelly and said listen and i'm in canada with you i'm in your area where i have no jurisdiction and i say nelly i just got information that pablo escobar is down here at the corner of first and main go check it out i'm gonna grab some coffee and come back with <laughs> let me know what you find out you're gonna be right. like screw you pal right so, the hell's this guy <laughs> yeah so we almost on a daily basis we were going out on the huey helicopter gunships we were going out uh, in plain, you know, with unmarked police cars and, and Columbia National Police officers in plain clothes doing surveillance, going out doing patrols, 
um, rating things, uh, interviewing the uh, Sicarios, henchmen, stuff like that, or well, trying to, yeah. yeah Cause, and here's the whole thing about that investigation. First of all, Pablo's battle was anti-extradition. That's his platform. He did not want to be extradited to the United States. That's what right. this whole thing is about. In addition to him, you know, becoming the world's richest criminal. Right. I think he's still way up there right now. Or, you know. All-time greats, if you want to use that expression. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I saw I saw a thing on the internet last year. Of course, it's on the internet. It's true, right? Right. Uh, there was an article rating the 10 richest criminals of all time. Pablo was number one at $30 billion, estimated. Jesus Christ. Number two was Chapo Guzman at $1 billion. I mean, that's the difference. Minor leagues and major leagues. Yeah, not even close. Yeah. So uh, we eventually established a 1-800 tip line there at the base. uh, And, you know, people would call in. They didn't want to talk to the Columbia National Police. So they want to talk to the Gringos. Uh, State Department here for the United States was offering a $5 million reward, which is a pretty big incentive. Right. We'll give information. But, I mean, you got to you got to judge each call on its own merit because Pablo would have his people call in and give us false tips and see right. because then you'd send cops out and that could be an ambush. So there's, there's a lot of variables that go in. It's a very cat and mouse game, right? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. But it was uh, long hours. Um, there was, you know, it got to the point where Javier and I, one of us would always be in Medellin, the other would be in Bogota. But if one of us took vacation and Javier was, you know, he was very gracious. He would always let me and Connie have Christmas time off so we could come back to the States and visit family and stuff like that. But there was one time when he finally took a vacation. I was in Medellin for five weeks straight. My wife's back in Bogota by herself. You know, we eventually adopted our first daughter in October of 93, which was before Pablo was killed. So she's there, you know, raising our young daughter by herself. And I'm dying because I'm, you know, this little girl is, Monica's sure. her name. She was a cute little turd. She's now she's 29 and still cute little turd. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bigger. Yeah. So when you had your big bust in uh, Miami, was you said 300, 400? Yeah, the one in Turks and Caicos was four. The Haitian was five. We had a lot of our group was very active. Okay, and then you arrive in Colombia, and what are the what are we talking about numbers wise there? Your average bust. Well, you know, see now we're we're not out seasoned dope and seasoned. Oh, okay. Money. You're on the field now. Okay. I got you. Yeah, we're so actually working with Columbia, at least simply because we don't have jurisdiction, but Javier went out on a raid to one of the jungle labs, uh, in Columbia. And we've got pictures. And when we do our, our presentation, you know, our talks, you know, we go around the world here. He's got pictures that we show. They found 10 tons of cocaine at this lab, <laughs> 10 tons. And here's the sad part. It was in, it was in a, they had dug this hole in the ground and, and there's a Spanish word is, is coleta. And coleta is, is basically a hiding spot. It could be a void space in a wall. It could be a hole in the ground, right. whatever. And uh, they found that one coleta with 10 tons. And the reality, there were probably three or four more coletas with just as much that they didn't find. Wow. I mean, it was cocaine. Crazy. Was yeah. That's the one thing I think the show kind of did a good job of portraying that sometimes they would lose a little bit. And to them, it was like pennies on the dollar, right? Oh, it's cost of doing business. They were, we, you know, when we knocked off that 400 kilos in Turks and Caicos, they probably laughed and went out and had a beer that, okay, hey, the Gringos <laughs> got one. We still got 25 loads through or whatever, you know, whatever it was. I mean, it's outrageous what was going on. Um, That's but I tell you what. I was I was having a blast. <laughs> After all that, it was a great time. 
Well, it sounds crazy. Uh, you know, it does but, to the average person. But believe it or not, it was. I would never do it again. But I wouldn't trade anything in the world for it. And then right. you come back. I got. I came. I've been four years in Miami, three years in Columbia. I got stationed in Greensburg, North Carolina, which I didn't even know where that was. Um, turns out, met some of the best police investigators in my entire life in that area. Down that whole area from from Greensboro up to the Virginia border, all the way down to Charlotte. Some of the most dedicated law enforcement professionals you ever meet. I'd never seen crack cocaine. I didn't even know what that was. I mean, I knew what it was, but I'd never seen it. And that was the right. big scourge back then. But to go from Miami to Columbia to Greensboro, is like, whoa. That's <laughs> quite the story, yeah. Did, yeah. Was there any close calls or was there a lot of close calls when you were in Columbia and you know in the field? There were a lot of close calls. Um, really? When you come in flying in on these Huey gunships, and these are the old Vietnam-era style helicopters, and, and you know when you're raiding these ranches, they, and if they're in the mountains, they can hear you coming several minutes before you get there, which gives them time to prepare. Now, most of the time, they'd run away. They just run up into the mountains, and you know you'd never see anybody, but not always. So that was always hairy. And then the like Javier points out in our shows, the biggest threat that he was worried about was the car bombs because yes. at our police base in Medellin, there were only two ways in and out. So Pablo would set his spies up at both entrances and they would report when a big convoy was going out. Cause that meant something was going to happen. Or if the helos took off, if several helicopters took off from the base right. with troops on it, you know, they could hear them, they could see them flying up in the air. So you're just worried that you're in a truck or a Jeep that goes by or even an armored car and they set a car bomb off, you know, and you just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and I just, you know, thank the good man upstairs. That didn't happen to us. It did happen right. to someone who's a friend. Sure. There, there's also uh, the story that Pablo wanted to take out a U.S. president with a missile to air, what is our surface to air missile? Yeah. Yeah. So Javier's even got a picture of the, of the missile. Um, and, and he was going to, so first president Bush was coming to Cartagena for some kind of summit and right. they wanted to use that, that missile to not, they thought they could knock out air force one with that. Well, there's four jets, there's four engines on air force one. They could have knocked one of the engines off and even part of a wing, but the thing's still going to fly. Wow. So it just, um, not we, a kind great plan. Of, well, we kind of make fun of that. I mean, it's a serious incident, but, um, <laughs> I mean, that would have been, uh, what I mean that would have opened a whole different can of worms if they even attempted to to shoot it and let's say missed. I mean I think the U.S. Army invades Cuba or Colombia the next day. <laughs> well, you know, thankfully Colombia is a strong ally of the United States, and right. I love. <laughs> believe me, I love being an American. I love living in the United States and living in Colombia. We lived a very good lifestyle when I was at home. I mean, we lived in the nicest apartments in the nicest part of town. And, you know, just, I love it down there. My wife does too, but living there made me appreciate living in the United States. So sure. uh, I, I don't want to say anything bad about Columbia because it is a, a strong ally. We have a difference of opinions on a lot of things down there, but so do we with everybody else in the world. Um, but uh, you just, I don't think the U S would have invaded Columbia. I think that the resources that were being provided to Columbia would have exponentially increased but here's a thought also, you know, we have this war on drugs and, and I'll be honest with you. I think it's one of the biggest misnomers, you know, one of the craziest things we've ever come up with because here we are going after the world's biggest cocaine,
manufacturer and distributor responsible for as much as 80%, 80% of the world's cocaine. I mean, think about that, Nelly. Wouldn't you like yeah. to have 80% of the podcast market? That guy, Joe Rogan. I'll take could, five. I'll take five. Yeah. yeah you could kick <laughs> Joe Rogan off the air, right? Yeah. I mean, holy cow. So <clears throat> this is who we're going after. And we're going up there to, to you know, to uh, try to find him after his escape, after he's made a mockery of the government of Colombia and law enforcement worldwide. Right. And what did we send? We sent two guys. That's not a war. Now we had, you know, we had a lot of uh, support from the DEA agents back in Bogota, Barranquilla, and the intel analysts, and our offices worldwide, and the military, and and all these other agencies. But that's not a war. You know, it's I mean, just. I'm glad you brought that up because actually that was a. a a line of questions that I kind of ha- wanted to ask you. What is the reason? What Maybe not the right reason, maybe, you know, the politics reason. You know, there's a lot of money in seizing, you know, dr- dr- there's a lot of business in seizing drug money. What's what's the reason that they didn't take this as seriously or they didn't put as many investments into, you know, operations in Colombia? Uh, <clears throat> I hate to get political. Uh, <laughs> I say very apolitical, but I think it's politics. I think our politicians, most of them, will say what they think we want to hear to get reelected or elected or reelected. Um, whatever the hot topic of the day is, you know, they'll go with the majority of the public opinion because they want the votes when the election comes up the next time. I think uh, I think uh, Ronald Reagan did have the right idea when he, you know, started the war on drugs, but the follow through was lacking. And then when you look at the government agencies, you know, like in, in the narco series, they show that we didn't get along with the CIA. That's absolutely true. Right. Because they thought we were stepping over into their areas of responsibility, which are the insurgent groups, communism. You know, we're, we're drug trafficking. I mean, we're drug investigators. We're, our big purpose in Colombia is to try to work with the Colombian National Police to collect evidence to prosecute people in the United States. So, right. I mean, there's completely different you know, the CIA doesn't prosecute anybody. They're not allowed to work in the boundaries of the United States. They're not allowed to investigate American citizens. When has that ever stopped the CIA? (laughs) You took a word right out of my mouth. (laughs) But, um, you know, when, and I say that, you know, when you've got FARC gorillas, the the FARC gorillas in Colombia, providing security on Pablo Escobar's cocaine labs in law enforcement, we call that a clue, Right. Right. And the, the head of the chief of station for the CIA down there, he even threatened to indict, have have Javier thrown in jail. Well, first of all, he doesn't have that authority because Javier's an American citizen. He can't do that. Right. But it was all about, well, you're stepping over into our area of responsibility. You need to stay in your lane. In fact, you guys shouldn't even be down here. Right. Well, so and, and I don't want that to sound like an indictment of the CIA, because personally, I think the CIA is a phenomenal organization. They don't get the credit they deserve a lot of times because they're a secret organization. They can't tell you the stuff they're doing. I mean, it's really, it's really tough for the average person who already has access to so much information that is very shady from the CIA. You know, um, we can talk about MK Ultra. We can talk about all these other programs. It, it's not that crazy to think that there is some hidden motives that the average person, maybe the, even the average DEA person, can't see for keeping the war potentially going longer or, you know, maybe not fully investing in it, or there's another political element for the same reason you probably couldn't bring in Castro's brother, all these different elements that are just, you're just feel like you're going to pawn in a chess game sort of, right? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, there was, even in the Columbia case, there was, uh, Javier and I were going to indict the president of Haiti. And this is after Escobar wow. was dead. Some of his henchmen were coming in and, uh, you know, trying, I guess, atoning for their sins or whatever you want to call it. Um, and this one guy that we interviewed, the CIA interviewed, we put him on, I think, three or four different lie detectors. He passed every one. Uh, he could describe things in Haiti to, a, to the detail that you knew he had been there. Because the only way you would know this is by physically being there. He was paying uh, Jean Bertrand Aristide, who was the president of Haiti back that time. He was delivering four hundred thousand dollars a month to him, and for in exchange, the Escobar drug planes could fly into the Haitian military airstrips unmolested. Then they transport the coke over to other vessels, and and that's how they were smuggling into the United States. So we were going to indict uh, the president of Haiti. And uh, got one of those phone calls from the White House, you know, right. not through the chain of command. This sure. is no, you're not. That's crazy. No, not. And, the, and the, the president back at that time is referred to as Slick Willie. Uh, you can figure out who that is. If you go back and look at his foundation, who do they support? The country of Haiti. Wow. So he he gave Aristide asylum in the United States, and then reinstalled him as president of Haiti several months later using our U.S. military. Now, after retirement, Javier and I were doing a contract job with the Department of Defense, and it, we actually were part of a group putting on a three-day course for SEAL Team 6 in Damneck, Virginia. And the class is it's classified. I can't tell you about it. but that's, we, like, that's such a cool flex, by the way. Anytime you can say that, I feel like that's just a cool It's classified. Can't talk yeah, about that. Shit, but, <laughs> no. <laughs> actually, we had to sign, we had to sign a non-disclosure agreement, so and they're serious about that. If I was stuff. in a bar, you know, my younger days, like, like if you were in younger days, I would just be like, yeah, I can't talk about that. That's classified. And that would <laughs> probably just drive them wild. If I tell you, I got to kill you. It's one of those. <laughs> yeah. But, but we, we actually met some of the SEALs uh, there in Virginia that you'd get to talking to them during breaks and, you know, in the evenings and things like that. And they're like, oh, yeah, I was on the detail. I'm one of the guys that took Aristide back and put him back in power in Port wow. Prince. So it's not. You know, it's not BS. This yeah. legit. Yeah, it's crazy. Have you ever? Have you had? Uh, t t sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say it comes down to the politics getting in the way. That's one of the biggest problems. I imagine, yes, of course, it makes sense. Um, the world is not as it seems um, to to us regular folk, and there's obviously layers to every story, right? Have you had um, potentially Tom O'Neill on the podcast? I have not. He is the author of a book called Chaos. It's okay. uh, the secret history of the CIA. Um, MK Ultra program. He basically discovered through 20 years of investigation uh, that Manson was a CIA informant potentially. There's no definitive proof of it, but the the wealth of evidence he collects over the 20 year period points to that being the case. Wow! So I've that's never a, heard that before. Yeah, you should 100. He was already he was on Joe Rogan. Uh, he, he was a fantastic guest. I would highly recommend. Um, it's, it's in line with your show, I believe. So I think you would probably enjoy. Well, you know, um, <clears throat> on game of crimes, we occasionally bring a former bad guy on that has flipped and has now cooperated. Right. Just to spice it up a little bit. Sure. So our first episode was Javier and I talking about, you know, long, we do long form. So it's, it could be a three hour interview. Oh, wow. The second episode was a guy named George Jung, who, if you've seen the movie blow with Johnny Depp, yes. that's who Depp portrayed was George Jung. Holy shit. And we got, we got his last interview. This was last year. We got his last interview before he passed away. Wow. And in his interview, he admits to working for the CIA. <laughs> He's never done that before. 
Yeah, that was pretty cool. Wait, 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 wait. He passed away a year after that admission, or was he was he old? I'm, I'm I gotta no. raise some questions here. Yeah, no, we so we uh, interviewed him in uh, late winter, early spring of 2021, okay. and then we launched our podcast in July, uh, June of last year of 21. But in May, I think it was May of 21 is when he passed away, and he, he had a lot of medical issues. Okay. Uh, so we so we got his last interview, and during the interview, uh, we you know we talked about him going down to Norman's Key where he was going to kill Carlos later, and he said, you know, he went up, he actually went there to, to murder him, and he wow. said he got up there and he saw Carlos and he just couldn't he couldn't do it he couldn't pull the trigger, and that kind of led to this, you know questions about well how well, just how many murders are you have you been involved with and you know right. he started on and, and my partner Morgan's asked him he said so was it more than five or less than five and he said. Um, yeah, it's been less than five. And then he talked about Noriega nationalizing his bank account where he lost, I think it was 62 or $63 million that he'd saved. And then he admitted to working for the CIA. You're learning more after your career than before about some of this other stuff. Oh, so much more. I mean, <laughs> and I don't want to make this a, a, a discussion about our podcast. I mean, people can no, listen, no, no. It's, you know, listen. No, and, it's and a good we're conversation. We're not, we're not the same genre as you. Yeah, I mean that's it's fascinating though that you learn all these things so many years after. I I, I think that's why Tom O'Neill's story is fan, fantastic. It's twenty years of investigation. It actually started out as a piece that he was supposed to do a, for a magazine, and mm-hmm. then he kept and he kept digging and digging, and he started realizing the narrative, helter skelter, all that skelter, whatever, wasn't adding up. And he's like, yeah, you know, I can't really publish this. I don't have. I have a lot of loose ends. And that ends up being a 20 year journey to discovering all these crazy things about, you know, CIA and, you know, MK ultra. It goes a little bit into the uh, JFK assassination. It's, it's a wild read. And, and if you don't want to read it, there's also a podcast with him and Rogan. So um, wow. a recommendation, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I just like you, man, we're always looking for guests. <laughs> um, can I ask you some more questions about, you know, your time in Columbia, your, you eventually when Pablo got out of that prison, you guys went in, you saw, you know, the whole operation, what was the prison like? How good did the show do uh, with depicting the prison or the cathedral? Uh, they do a really good job, but in real life, it's much nicer than what's depicted in Narcos. It's even nicer. Believe it or not. <laughs> in, in our show, we actually, that's part of the show is we, so it turns out that uh, I used to carry a camera everywhere I went. It was just a little pocket 35 millimeter. Actually, it actually was my wife's camera. Uh, it wasn't digital. You know, you had to have the film developed and all that. And so the pictures that we show in our show are the pictures that we took. So we actually take you into Pablo's suite at at La Cathedral. I mean, first of all, who names a prison the cathedral? That's what we call our churches, right? He just couldn't stay low-key. I mean, his biggest mistake was just all this massive ego. If he just had a slightly smaller ego, I feel like he could have made it. (laughs) Absolutely. No, you're right. You're right. Because he got the deal of a lifetime. He really did. He was allowed to plead guilty to one one crime in Colombia, and he was absolved of every other crime he committed in his entire life, including thousands and thousands of murders. He was too big to fail as a as a drug lord. Yeah, and, and I love it because people say, "Well, uh, you know, if Pablo had been a legitimate businessman, he could have been just as rich." No, he wouldn't. His <laughs> business model is, "Hey, listen, Nelly, I want you to go do this, and if you don't do it, listen, I'm, you know, are these pictures of your wife and children? Right, and these are your parents, right?" So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kill them and I'm going to kill your dog and then I'm going to kill you, but I'm going to torture you. That yes. was his business model. So you can't, obviously you can't use that legitimate business, right? Right. 
So it's, it's, it, it's, there's so many myths out there. You know, his son tried to start this myth that he committed suicide on that roof in 1993 and all those pictures of his body. I took those pictures. I wasn't on the roof as, as it shows in the show narcos. That's not true. I was back at the base. I rode out with Colonel Martinez afterwards. And by the way, for, for all your listeners, Colonel Carrillo, who's portrayed in the show, there is no Colonel Carrillo. That was made up by Hollywood. Uh, (laughs) Cause we get a lot of people saying, well, Colonel Carrillo did this. He killed those little kids. You know, he killed, he killed uh, Gustavo Pablo's cousin. No, he didn't. He's a fictitious character. (laughs) Two seconds to Google that guys. Come on. 2022. Give it a quick Google search. Why is that so hard? And, and I like the way that you put it, Nelly, because we challenge every audience. Don't accept what we say as the gospel. Is the, right. you know, go do your own research, and then you make up your own mind. Don't let other people tell you what to think. Sure. You know, that's the, you know, the news. I love watching the news, but just tell me the news. I'm, you know, I can do, I'm smart enough that I can figure out what I think or what I should think right. about. Go do additional research. I don't need an anchor or a TV reporter telling me what I'm supposed to think. As you get older, you start realizing that, you know, you just want to hear what the big story is. And then after that, you'll kind of think about the implications from both sides as opposed to just, oh, they did this because of that. Well, 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 let's 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 slow down there. Let's see why why this happened. Let's let's look look at this a little bit further back out and see what everyone's motives in the story is. Exactly. Maybe maybe we should look at the facts. Yes. And then decide what's right, what's wrong. Right. And not someone to evaluate the facts for me and, and digest it for me like I'm a child. We, we've all got a brain. We've all got a brain. <laughs> that prison, you took, you were talking about some photos you took. There's a few infamous photos for Pablo. There is the one in, in and they're all at very different points in, in his timeline. The one in the White House, the, outside the White House. Yeah. When was that taken? What's the significance of that story? How did he even get to America and freely take a photo in front of the White House. Well, um, the very first trailer of the Narco series, season one, um, at the the very last statement that the actor, so the actor that plays me, his name's Boyd Holbrook, and and Boyd and I got to be really good friends. And turns out that his dad was a coal miner, and my my I'm first generation non coal miners from my family and my wife's family. Wow. My oldest brother in law actually worked in an adjacent mine to where Boyd's father worked. So they and they knew each other. So just small world. Um, That's crazy. But, um, and again, I just, I get to talking about family and I forget where we're going. What was your question again? <laughs> <laughs> I can are, we, are we both on some sort of drug? No, uh, the question was the first photo from the White House. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. You, how the hell did that happen? Okay, so here's here's the way to figure that out. When Pablo was killed in 1993, his son Juan Pablo was 17. In that picture, he looks like he's probably, what, five years old maybe? Right. So that would be 12 years before 93. So that's 83. So mid seventies. Right. Now, and in that trailer, this is what I was going to tell you. The last statement that Boyd makes is we didn't know what we were in for. And this, it's absolutely true because Pablo introduced a drug, a a business model of drug trafficking that made him responsible for 80% of the world's cocaine. And he hit the United States realizing what the market would be here. Entered, I mean, just unbelievable. He had no cares. We got pictures of him sitting in Disney World, kicked back on the bench, like, yep, here I am. I had a good day, so I came to Disney. Well, you, know, you go to Disney World. Dude. Right. It's ridiculous. That's and crazy. you can see the picture. Does it look like he's worried? He's standing in front of the White House. Yeah. <laughs> like he's worried about the you. The most populated tourist area, one of the most populated tourist areas in, in the States. 
exactly. So seventies. Uh, so actually, that's when you were starting Miami. Your time Miami a little bit, right? That's when I first started as a as a uniform police officer. Okay, gotcha. So Miami was a bit later. Okay. There was there's a house that Javier uh, several uh, several years ago, a couple years before COVID. There was a house that Pablo bought in Miami, right on the bay. Beautiful. I mean, it's, I think it's uh, the last I heard it sold for ten million, but I think I heard that it's up for twenty million now. Anyway. He bought this house. You know what the name is on the deed? Pablo Emilio Escobar. No way. Does that sound like somebody's worried about <laughs> somebody finding? And we we even had we were doing a documentary, um, and they had a copy of the original deed, and we had a handwriting expert come in and confirm that that was Pablo. That was Sigurd. his. Wow. Yeah. yeah, he just wide open. He was out doing his thing, you know. So in the seventies, when that boom was happening in Miami, when you know it was getting out of hand, the city was literally being built on cocaine money. You're seeing increased violence, uh, increased corruption in the law enforcement. Here's the guy that's mainly responsible for that coming into a country where he's later on super worried about extradition and taking photos in front of the most sacred U.S. monument mm-hmm. or one of the most. And not only that, he's in the happiest place in the world, Disney World. That's, which is, I live in Orlando, so we're here. That's insane. That, like, just crazy. to wrap your mind around that, doesn't seem. It seems like the truth is crazier than any fiction you can make up. I mean, it's just it's audacious, right? Right. It's outrageous what he's doing, what he did. It was just unbelievable. That's one. So that's the first photo I want to talk about. This next one is probably the mug shot. Yeah. And you describe that as like a, a, the shortest arrest in history, potentially. What's the story behind the actual mugshot, and why is he smiling? Well, he, he went in to challenge. It's 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 fairly accurate as it's portrayed in that portion of Narcos, right? Where you know the cops, he's been paying off cops, and all of a sudden they realize how much money he's making, and so they want more money. So rather than calling him and saying, "Hey, we want more money," they see some of his illegal properties whether it's you know right, a, send him a message yeah and so he comes in to challenge him you know hey i'll you know what do you think we're going to do here why i paid you off why did why did my stuff get seized and they're like well we think we need more money because you're making a lot more money and he right. challenges him and so the cop shows him i'll show you what my authority is and, and cuffs him and so they they put him through the fingerprint process and the photograph and all that well you know I, I never had a mugshot. I probably deserved it as a young kid before I was 18. Uh, but if I had one, that's not something I'd be proud of. It's not something that I would want sure. to trade. And, and I've arrested a lot of people in my 38 years as a police officer. I haven't had a single person that smiled in their mugshot. Really? Wow. <laughs> so it just shows you he knew this is bullshit. You know, I'll, I'll yeah, okay, you got me. What are you going to do with me? Because you can't prove anything. And by the way, I'll probably kill you before we ever get to court. Right. So was uh cockroach i believe also is that part of the story real where that's how he discovered that there was a, a rat on the inside that was giving information to police or it, it's a great story i don't think that's how it happened um i'm no. more inclined to believe the story where um there was a guy named restrepo i can't remember his first name now who was dealing small amounts of cocaine and medellin kilo quantities but just not a lot just a few kilos right used pablo pablo was involved in black market smuggling uh, televisions, washing machines, things like that. He started. He started out his criminal career stealing hubcaps and stealing gravestones out of graveyards, and then yeah. sandblasting them down and reselling them to the company. <laughs> yeah, 
real, you know, real stand-up guy. Right. Um, but then when he he did that little delivery for Restrepo, he realized how much money was involved, and then he ends up killing Restrepo and taking over his business. And then he, he I, apparently, you know, we had the FBI uh, behavioral analysis unit do a, a workup on him back way back when. Sure. And the guy had no remorse. He had no conscience. Um, you know, he he was comfortable killing people, torturing people, taking their stuff, killing their family members. He had no problem with any of that. Um, so I don't know what you call it a psychopath. I don't know what you call it. Just, you know, just evil. I mean, this is really yes. the simplest way. And okay. The last photo is you in front of his dead body smiling, which apparently got you into a lot of trouble, but it was also a very significant, important photo. Can you tell me a little bit about that? <clears throat> I can. And, um, like you said, when that photo hit Washington, I did catch some grief over it, you know, because they weren't real happy. There's a DEA agent. And for whatever reason, I've got on a bright red polo shirt that day. It just makes you stick out like a sore thumb. Right. <laughs> you know, but that's, I mean, that's the way Hunter and I dressed there. We weren't allowed to wear anything that looked like military or police. So we always wore blue jeans, tennis shoes, and, you know, either polo shirt or T-shirt or, right. or just, you know, something like that. And we couldn't display our weapons openly. They always had to be under, like most time you carry nine millimeter in the back of your pants. Right. Um, so, excuse me, when I get there that day, I ride out to the site after Pablo's been killed with Colonel Martinez. Again, I've got my camera. Turns out I have the only camera that worked that day until the autopsy people got there. So, you know, we've been living and working with these cops for 18 months. Javier's known them for, I've known them for over two years now. Javier's known them for over five years. Um, these are the guys that we ate with. We slept in the same quarters. We were in, um, this is going to sound so dramatic when I say this, but, uh, you know, we were in combat together. Sure. Um, these are the people you trust with your life. You know, and, and you really get to know each other. We, you know, drank the same nasty agua. I don't know if you ever heard of Agua Diente, but that's the drink they have down there. It tastes like ouzo. You do shots. And when we do <laughs> Whatever that. Whatever you going, it doesn't matter. It's all right. Well, At that would, point, it doesn't matter. They would chase it with orange soda, which to us was just too sweet. So we would chase it with beer. And then, you know, you try to stand up and you fall out on the sidewalk. Yeah, you know, fair. Deadly like combination. These are the guys that, that, I mean, we just trusted our lives with for so long. Um, and then... When when I got out to the site there, and I'm in that third floor window looking down the roof where Pablo's body's laying, and that's our that's our team down there. And I yelled at them. Well, they they could they had a hard time pronouncing my name Steve, so it came out as Stick or Stick. So that was my that's nickname. Everybody had a nickname down there, so my nickname was Stick. And I'm going, and then I yelled down at them, and they're like Stick, Stick, and they're holding their rifles up. They don't fire rounds like they do over in the Middle East, but you know you can yeah. tell they're really proud. And so Colonel Martinez and I make, I took some pictures from that area, from that angle. Then Colonel Martinez and I went down, went around the buildings because these are row houses. And we climbed the ladder up and we got on the roof where Pablo's body was. And the police officers are, they want their, you know, first of all, you can probably imagine that everybody's elated because Pablo's finally been found and taken down. Right. You know, here's a guy that at one point had as many as 500 Sicarios protecting him on December 2nd, 1993 at one. It was Scario with him, which surprised, I, honestly, that surprised us all because we thought it was going to be a major gun battle. Right. So <clears throat> they want to pose with the pictures. And so I'm taking their pictures and they're like, Steak, Steak, take my picture, take my picture. And so that's how some of those pictures came out. And then those guys finally, like, Steak, Steak, come on over here, come on over here, get your picture. So you go over and you get caught up in the elation. 
And I got to be honest with you, we felt like the weight of the world was lifted off our shoulders because we've been living in Medellin for 18 months. My wife's back in Bogota by herself. Right. You know, we can't take vacations at the same time. We're working like 26 hours a day. It's, uh, I mean, it was, there was nothing glamorous about with that investigation. It's one of those, there was a time, believe it or not, there was a, a lull like the summer of uh, 93 where we weren't getting any tips in, we weren't making any progress. And, and, you know, you start feeling sorry for yourself, which is ridiculous to do, but it's like, you right. know what, just some of a bitch retire. I mean, re, uh, surrender again, you know, let's go back home and start living a, a, a somewhat normal life again. Right. But then, you know, some of our friends would get killed in, in, in raids and operations they were doing. And it's like, okay, quit feeling sorry for yourself. Get back on focus, get back on your mission, you know, and, and realize what's important here. It's not your little sappy ass, feelings right and that was kind of a bad way to say that but um i get what you're saying though is yeah. it how was how his like power towards the end was it well you said he had 500 sicarios then he came down to one did he still not have the money did he how, was he losing resources why was he you know in such a weak state i guess well and here's the key <clears throat> so you've heard of the group los peppies yes now, Los Pepe's is nothing more. They they kind of came on scene about January of 93. They're nothing more than a group of murder, murderous vigilantes that are just right. as bad as Pablo Escobar. You know, we don't condone that in law enforcement. But what they did is they used Escobar's tactics against him. So they would, like, like um, what they would do is anybody that was supporting Escobar or his organization or his family, they would target them and kill them, blow their houses right. up. And it could be anything from a, a doctor or a lawyer or a school teacher that's teaching his children or a butcher or anybody that was associated with the family, they were taking them out. Now, the funny thing is public opinion in Colombia initially was pro Los Pepes. Hey, this is great. Pablo's getting a taste of his own medicine. And I'll be honest with you, I felt the same way. All of us. But then they eventually killed two attorneys and one of the attorneys had a 10 year old kid with him that day and they killed that 10 year old kid. In Colombia, it's not like in the U.S. where we really filter out pictures, you know, that's in media. Uh, in Colombia, they don't. They put the pictures of the dead kid in the magazines and on the news, and people saw that, and it really started turning the opinion, public opinion, away from Los Pepes. They're like, wow, this, these people aren't any better than Pablo. Right. So and it, it even got to the point where uh, the State Department there in Bogota, U.S. State Department, wanted to send – uh, the U.S. military, our Navy SEALs and our Delta Force guys back to the United States. And and even so, we didn't have Special Operations Command then like we have now. It's Back then they had Southern Command, which was located in Panama. And Southern Command was going to pull them out. And our ambassador called the White House and the Pentagon and got it stopped. Wow. You know, it was a knee-jerk reaction, right. which was a long reaction. So, um, but so here's the bottom line telling the whole story. The truth is Los Pepe's had a lot to do with bringing Pablo down because they were taking out his organization. Now the, the Columbia national police and the Columbia military were also, but Los Pepe's had no laws that they were going by, no rules, no rules of engagement. Right. You know, they want to kill somebody. They just killed him just like Pablo. And that's what really decimated his organization and got him to the point where in December of 93, he only had one Sicario left. His power base has gone down. His connections in the government are gone. And all the other um, cartels are encroaching on his space. Oh, everybody's against him. The Cali cartel is financing Los Pepe's, wow. uh, you know, to the tune of millions of dollars. The North Valley cartel was throwing money in there. A lot of the smaller 
uh, drug traffickers were, you know, who would answer to the Rodriguez or Wayla brothers in Cali. They were chipping in money. Everybody was thrown in to try to take down Pablo. I, there's so much we can continue talking, but I've already held you for too long. I guess the final question, which I'm really curious about is, you know, you've, you've experienced some pretty probably traumatic, ex, you know, experiences in, in your time in, in Colombia and your time in law enforcement in general, but you do seem to have a positive outlook, uh, you know, positive personality and, and you're joyful in, in a general sense. So how, how does, how does that happen? Where, where do you think that came from and, and how do you maintain that in today's world as well? Um, so, uh, I'm just, I'm an optimistic person. Being pessimistic is, is detrimental to your mental health, in my opinion. Right. Uh, just like I said, I'm a Christian. I believe the good Lord has plans for all of us. Um, and you know, you're probably going to get some kickback when I say things like this, cause I'm going to say what my beliefs are. I'm, I'm not ashamed to be a Christian and I'm not ashamed to tell the world that I am. And I believe that God has a plan for every one of us. And, and you know what? His plan wasn't for us to die in Columbia that day. Now, I could go out here. I just got back from the gym right before we, you know, doing this, this interview, I might've been hit by a dump truck or something out here. I might walk out in my front yard and have a heart attack. Well, right. I'm okay. with that. I'm, I'm not, I love life. I don't want to die, but when I die, I know what's going to happen to me. I, a lot of people right. don't, they think they do. I, I just happen to believe what I believe and, and I'm okay with that. If you believe something different, well. <laughs> yeah, but no, there's a real good serenity there. That's a really positive um, it does. And it, just, in life. Yeah. it just, it gives you a, a positive outlook on everything. I mean, yesterday was July 4th here and, and, uh, we, we went out with our son-in-law. My, my daughter was working here in Orlando. And, and so we took her husband and their five-year-old out to a local park and it was just hotter than blazes out there and sweating like a pig. And as we're leaving, there's an Orlando police officer sitting there. And I know this guy's dying cause he's got his full uniform on his vest and the man had right. a smile on his face. And I walked up to him and I just, Hey brother, thank you for being out here. And my granddaughter runs, she's five years old. She ran up. She said, my grandpa used to be a police officer, you know? And, and so he's like, Oh yeah. And that led to a conversation. Right. You know? That's and, beautiful. And he said, I said, I am so sorry. You're sitting out here in this heat. I can't imagine. He said, you know, I got a smile on my face, but I'm dying inside. Right. But his, attitude, his attitude made him open and friendly. And that, you know, why be miserable in life? There's so many bad things that happen around us. Sure. You know, we the shooting Most of them not in your control. Exactly. So, you know, improve your mental attitude. It makes life a whole lot more fun. Don't take yourself too serious. People, you know, people say, oh, you and Javier, you're these American heroes. You're bravery. None of that's true. We were a couple of 38-year law enforcement professionals that got to work a really big case, big drug case, that got blown out of proportion by a show called Narcos. Sure. We're both small town country boys. There's nothing special about us. Uh, you just got to remember who you are, where you came from. Life's good. You know, enjoy it. Don't be miserable. Beautiful. I don't know if we can end on a better note that um, if you're interested in the book, I'll leave links down below. I'll also leave links to the podcast, the official website. I'm sure you're still doing more tours or hoping to get back out there. This was a fantastic conversation. And I thank you so much for your time. Nelly, thank you so much, but I'm sorry it took us so long to get together, but uh, this was a good interview. I really appreciate it.